Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 11. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, as I, as we come to your word, Father, we pray that your spirit remove. I pray that you will move aside my pride, my need for recognition, man's approval, so that you can do your work in the hearts of your people and even inside my own heart. I'm just as needy. I'm just as broken. And I, too, have issues in my heart and in my life. And I need Jesus to fix me. So, Father, I come to this word as a beggar as well, just like we all are. We all are needy and wounded by the fall. And so, Lord, we come to your word, to your truth, in your presence, to be healed, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to go out and fight one more week, one more day. So, Holy Spirit, I pray that you move in this place today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. There was a study done by the National Marriage Project, and they found that about 80% of Young adults from 18 to 20 considered marriage as an important part of their life plans. 80%. Are you shocked by that number? I know I was. It shows that, that marriage is not completely dead in our country, but yet a lot of marriages in our country end in divorce. And we know that to be true. One professor says 50% of first marriages end in divorce. 50%. She says 67% of second marriages end in divorce and 74% of third marriages end in divorce. There are many, many reasons why marriage can end in divorce. And one of the reasons, I think, is because spouses come into marriage with unrealistic expectations about marriage. Unrealistic expectations about marriage. One author says, marriage is a remarkable institution in many ways, but it cannot bear all the unrealistic expectations that we heap upon it. Marriage is a remarkable institution in many ways, but it cannot bear all the unrealistic expectations that we have heaped upon it. You see, unrealistic expectations in marriage does not take into consideration that marriage is now not what it was created to be. 
Because when you look at marriage through the lens of the fall, you see that marriage is hard and even sometimes broken. It's still good, but now it takes a lot of work to make marriage work. But as a spouse, you will always be tempted not to put in the work that is necessary for the health of your marriage. You will always be tempted to do that. Instead, you, you will easily fall into the trap or plan a game that would drive a wedge between you and your spouse. And you know it. Some of you are undefeated. It's called the shame game. The shame game. And like self-centeredness, the shame game is an enemy of your marriage. And many of us have given it a seat of honor in it. It's an enemy to your marriage. But many of you, you give it a seat of honor. We play this game in our marriage, I believe in all of our relationships, because people and our spouses can't live up to our unrealistic expectations. They can't. Here's why they can't. Because your husband, your wife, your best friend are not what they were created to be anymore. We're sinful people. Sinful spouses. That's what we are. Why? All because Adam and Eve fell from grace. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. These verses, they reveal to us changes that took place in Adam and Eve after they ate of the forbidden fruit. Their rebellion, their adultery brought them into a state of sin and misery. They were now alienated from each other because of the fig leaves. They were separated from God as we saw them hiding among the trees of the garden. Their sin made them self-centered. And all of us here are descendants of our first parents. All of us. I don't care how much money we got, our lifestyle, our color, our culture. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And the apple does not fall far from the tree. We are them. I'm them. That means I was born into a state of sin and misery. And sin is not just the bad things that I do or the, my behaviors. But sin is the condition of my heart. Of my very heart. And it has stained every area of my life. Even believers. Those who have been set free from sin through their saving faith in Christ still struggle with sin. We still do. We still do. One author says, sin isn't just a permanent house guest, but it is a meddlesome wretch. It's always poking its nose in, licking over your shoulder, whispering in your ear. Many of us have been deceived when it comes to the hard realities of marriage. We enter into marriage thinking it's going to be easy. That our marriage is not going to face some of the hard challenges that other marriages face. My marriage is going to be different. Mm-hmm. My marriage is not going to be like my parents' marriage. I'm not going to face those challenges. And here's the hard reality of marriage. Each spouse, each spouse's sin 
will be a meddlesome wretch in their marriage. Each spouse. Each spouse will bring their own sin baggage into their marriage. They will. They come into marriage with fig leaves on. You got to know that. Sinners don't stop being sinners when they get married. Marriage just reveals how much of a sinner you are. It will. It will. Every spouse, every person has issues. Who has issues? Who has issues? And if you forget that, that's the issue. That's the issue. If you do. In marriage, if you forget you got issues, that's the issue. That's the issue. A marriage that's built on unrealistic expectation is a house of cards. It's a house of cards. Because the fall actually happened, people. It happened. That's, this, is, this, is not, this is just not a story. This is truth. This happened. And our marriage cannot take unrealistic expectations. Like, when my spouse and, and my marriage is going to be the source of my happiness. My spouse and my marriage is going to be the source of my security, the source of my significance. That's unrealistic. If I marry the right person, if I find that my soulmate, then all is going to be right in my life. We're going to have a drama-free marriage. We're not going to argue like my parents did. We're going, my marriage is going to be different. Argument-free. I'm going to be a perfect wife. I'm going to be a, a perfect husband. We're never going to let each other down. We're never going to hurt one another. It all sounds good for a Lifetime movie. But in reality, it's unrealistic. Tim Keller says, it is the illusion that we find our one true soulmate. Everything wrong with us would be healed. No human being can live up to that. It is the illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us would be healed. But no human being can live up to that. No one can. Please understand that the realistic expectations is marriage is that you're going to see your spouse's issues. You're going to see your spouse's sins. You're going to see your spouse's weaknesses, shortcomings, flaws, and self-centeredness. And you should expect at some point your spouse will sin against you and you will sin against your spouse. That's realistic. That's honesty. That's reality. Wives, your husbands will let you down. They're going to hurt your feelings and sometimes in painful ways. Husbands, your wives will let you down or hurt your feelings sometimes in painful ways. In some marriages, spouses sin against each other in horrible ways to the point where their marriage cannot be saved, like adultery, abuse, willful desertion. It happens, even in Christian marriages. It does. That's a reality. I wish it was different. When a lot of high-profile marriages end in divorce, there's a phrase that is used almost every time. And I think it's a common phrase when people want to get out of their marriage and get a quick divorce. It's irreconcilable differences. And that, that's a legal term. And, and, and that term basically means that a couple gets to a point where they cannot reconcile their differences. 
So the grounds for divorce is that we have irreconcilable differences. So our marriage can't work. It's no longer workable. But what we fail to understand as spouses, we intermarriage with irreconcilable differences. It's called sin. You intermarriage with irreconcilable differences. It's called sin. Particularly self-centeredness. Self-centeredness. Two self-centered people can't accompany the same spot. One's going to fight for power to have their way. So how, as a spouse, are you dealing with your spouse's issues? How are you dealing with them? How are you dealing with your husband's issues, wives? His shortcomings. His flaws. How are you dealing with them? Husbands, how are you dealing with your wives' flaws and shortcomings and imperfections and issues? How are we dealing with them? Do we deal with them the way God initially dealt with Adam in our text here? The text says, the Lord God called out to the man and said, where are you? There were implications of him calling Adam out. It was just as some regular call, like, where are you, Adam? How are you doing? He was calling Adam out to give an account for what he had just done for his deed. So keep in mind, Adam and Eve, they just committed rebellion. They just sinned against God. They just rebelled and brought sin into the world. So it's fitting for the Lord God to come into the garden to ask him to give an account. And he asked a rhetorical question, where are you? You don't think God knew where he was? He did. And the you here in the Hebrew is singular. I mean, God came in the garden to see the man, the one who was primarily responsible for what happened. And the Lord knew he was hiding among the trees. And I believe this was God giving Adam the opportunity to come clean, to own up what had happened. One commentator says, God is shown as a gentle father seeking out his own. His means of uncovering their deed was interrogation rather than a charge and public condemnation. Because he could have came into the garden and laid down the law harshly for what had happened. He had a right to do that. He could have came in and wiped him out for his rebellion. But he didn't. He did not come in with an iron fist. He did not humiliate and shame Adam for what he did. He could have. But he didn't. But we often do. And it's called the shame game. And, you, and the shame game is usually how sinful spouses handle the irreconcilable differences. And to win at the shame game, you have to become an expert stat keeper. You got to know how to keep good stats. Because you can't win the game if you don't keep stats. So you have to have your issue radar on full alert for your spouse. Because every time your spouse lets you down, disappointment, you put it on the stat sheet. Got you. You put it in your back pocket for the battle. Every time your spouse fails to make mistakes, put it on the stat sheet. Got to keep track of this stuff if you want to win the game. Every time your spouse sins and falls short, you got to put it on the stat sheet. Got to keep good records. Keep a good folder. And when it's time to play the game, lay it out. You shame them. For everything they've done wrong, everything they've said, every shortcoming. And like Herman Edwards says, 
We play to win the game, people. We play to win the game. And in the shame game, sinful spouses, they fight to win and to be right instead of fighting for forgiveness and repentance and reconciliation. When you play to fight the shame game, you play it to win and to be right and not fighting for forgiveness, repentance, and reconciliation. That's why we play it. And we're going to, in the third part of our marriage series, we're going to dig into what repentance and reconciliation looks like in marriage. We're going there. Now they're showing you what sin can do to your marriage if you let it. There's a scene from a, a TV show I saw this week where a lady asked a gentleman, why are you showing me so much kindness? And he said, because we're not married. Think about that. Why are you showing me so much kindness? Because we're not married. Wow. I'm showing you kindness because you're not my wife? What kind of marriage did this person have that he can't even show kindness to his wife? It was like it was a war zone. It was a bloodbath where the strongest spouse survived. This goes to show you that that sin can do great damage to any marriage, even Christian marriages, to the point where spouses don't even show kindness to one another. Now, they'll show face in public because you got to keep up appearances. I'm talking about behind the walls. Anyone can come here and show face. I'm talking about when you get home after church and lunch. I'm talking about real life. This ain't real life here. I'm talking about real life. We don't. Don't forget that Adam damaged his relationship with the Lord. And that's why he was hiding in the garden. And make no mistake, the Lord God knew what they had done. And he was not walking in the garden with his head in the clouds as if he was clueless. He knew what they were doing. He knew what they had done. And he's called them out to come clean. He's going to hold them accountable. We know that. We know how Genesis 3 ends. He's going to hold them accountable. They're going to have to deal with the consequences of their sin. And even as he judged them, did he shame him? Did God shame Adam and Eve in the garden? He judged them, but did he shame them? Did he demean them? Did he belittle them? No, he did not. He never shamed them. So spouses, you can hold one another accountable. You should. You should call each other out for things. But can we do it without shaming them? Can you do it without shaming them? Can we do that? Can we call one another out for the purpose of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation? Like I said, I believe the Lord God knew what Adam and Eve had done, and he gave them a chance to, 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 to come clean. Because remember, he created them in his own image, and he still cared for them, even though they rebelled against him. Because we know when he kicked them out of the garden, what did he do? He made coverings for them. When he kicked them out of the garden, that showed that he still cared for them. You see, he did not destroy their value, their dignity, and self-worth in the process of judging them. Sin had already did that. Their sin had already damaged their value, dignity, and self-worth. And those fig leaves that they were making, those fig leaves that they made for themselves, they were their attempt to self-heal. That was their attempt to, to, to provide healing for their own shame and guilt. That was their attempt to, to heal their broken value, their broken dignity, and their broken self-worth. Those what those fig leaves represented. 
sinful spouses don't just bring their sin into their marriage, but they also bring their shame, their guilt, and their wounds into marriage as well. Did you know that about your spouse? Did you know that? That your spouse came into your marriage wounded, broken, but he or she is hiding it behind fig leaves from you of fear that you won't love them if they knew the real you, them. We all have them. Fig leaves, wounds. Spouses come into marriage with a lot of pain because some have been hurt by parents, by fathers, by mothers. Some come in wounded, broken, been in an abusive relationship. So they come in hurt. Not just what they're saying, but wounds as well. Your spouse coming to your marriage with a value, a dignity, and a self-worth that has been wounded and broken by the fall. They come in that way. They do. As a spouse, you have been given great power and responsibility. But how will we use it? Will we use it for good or evil? The shame game is really an attempt to forcefully and unlovingly remove your spouse's fig leaves from them. Think about that. The shame game is your attempt to forcefully and unlovingly remove your spouse's fig leaves. It's you trying to fix your spouse, trying to fix their issues, their brokenness, and it doesn't work. Instead, the shame game harms your spouse, causes more harm to their dignity, their value, and self-worth. You might as well just be pouring acid on them. You might as well be. Because you know what shame does? It hurts you on the inside. Now, I can pretend like the words don't hurt me. They will pretend like it doesn't hurt you. But every time you shame your spouse, they dial it on the inside. And they pull far away from you. Because you know what? You're no longer safe. You're not a safe place. You're supposed to be the safest place for your spouse on earth. Did you know that? A safe place. But for some, we're not that for our spouses. And it, and it hurts so much. It hurts so much. The shaming hurts so much because it comes from the person who looked you in the face and said these words, I take you to be my wedded wife, my wedded husband in the presence of God in these witnesses, to have, to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, to love, to cherish, to death, through us part according to God's holy ordinance. Therefore, I pledge my love and my faithfulness to you. That's why I hurt so much. And every time we play the shame game with each other, we renege on our covenant vows. Know that. Every time you shame your spouse, you renege on those vows you took, the vows you said to that person. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller quoted an ethics professor from the Duke University. 
the, the professor says, disruptive to marriage, disruptive to marriage is the self-fulfillment ethic that assume marriage and family are primarily institutions of personal fulfillment, necessary for us to become whole and happy. The assumption is that there is someone just right for us to marry. And if we look closely enough, we'll find that right person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact we always marry the wrong person. This moral assumption overlooks a crucial aspect of marriage. It fails to appreciate the fact that we always marry the wrong person. We never know when we marry. We just think we do. Or even if we first marry the right person, just give it a while and he or she will change. For marriage, being the enormous thing it is, means we're not the same person after we have entered it. The primary problem is learning how to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. The primary problem is learning to love and care for the stranger to whom you find yourself married. How do sinful, broken spouses learn how to love and care for each other? How do sinful, broken spouses reconcile their differences? How do sinful and broken spouses stop using the shame game? Where is our only hope? Saving faith in Christ, people. That's it. That's your only hope for your marriage, to be what God wants it to be. To be what God wants it to be. As spouses, you have to remember that you too are sinful. And if Jesus treated you the way you treat your spouse, you would not be able to stand before God. How did Jesus deal with your sin? How does he handle your sin? Does he judge you according to your sin? No. He laid down his life for you. He laid it all down for you. My enemy. You weren't even his friend. He laid it all down for you. Went to the cross for you. Bore the nails for you. Bore the beatings for you. So that you would not have to endure it yourself. You have to know that. That's you. This is you bringing the gospel into your marriage. Seeing how much you have been forgiven of. Will help you to forgive your spouse. Because you know you are messed up too. You have to bring your faith into your marriage. It cannot just be in books and tapes and CDs. It has to be inside your marriage, all over your marriage. A grace in a marriage. A marriage under the cross of Christ. That's what our marriages have to be. Paul Tripp says, sin is a relationship. And it takes a relationship to deliver us from sin. Christ was willing to experience rejection that our rebellion deserved so that we could have the relationship with God. That's our only hope as we grapple with the selfishness of sin. Let us pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for Christ, that he is our only hope as we grapple with the sinfulness of sin in our marriage. He is. He's the only way that as spouses we would not live in playing the shame game with one another. But instead, 
extending grace to one another. And so, Father, I know that marriage is hard. It's not easy. There are a lot of things that I'm not talking about right now. A lot of things I can't go into right now. But, Lord, you know what every marriage needs. You know what every marriage is suffering from. You know what every individual here is suffering from. You know we all need you. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit will come and comfort us in our affliction, come and comfort us in our doubt and unbelief, that you will come minister to us in a mighty way. And let all the couples know that there is hope for their marriage. (laughs) It's a person. It's Christ. He is the hope. And the spouses, they got to go to the cross together. Near before the cross together. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.